Before we start the show, I just wanted to let you know that we'll be talking about sexual and domestic violence in this episode. If you or someone you know is experiencing domestic violence, you should call 1-800-RESPECT on 1-800-737-732. You could also call the New South Wales Rape Crisis Centre on 1-800-424-071. I know it's really difficult, I know it's really hard. This is Karen Willis, the Executive Officer of the New South Wales Rape Crisis Centre. But the overall message is it's never your fault, you've never done anything to ask for or deserve, and the responsibility for this behaviour is absolutely always with the offender and the system that supports the offender in those behaviours, and that's where the problem is, and that's what we've got to change. All right, now for the show. I met my partner five years ago, ish. This is Yasmin. The early days of my relationship were great. We were happy. We were supportive of each other. She is head over heels in love. We maintained a long-distance relationship for a year or so, and then I moved here to be with him on the de facto visa. Yasmin is no real name, and this isn't a real voice. You'll find out soon why. It started happening during our move to Australia and sort of heightened during the visa application process. It's very stressful and requires a lot of work and a lot of money, which we didn't have a huge amount of. So I think that sort of financial pressure and sort of change of circumstances caused the deterioration of the relationship. It began slowly. At first, it seemed relatively inconsequential. Or maybe it was just a normal couple's argument. But then it sort of became more and more frequent and started to branch out into other areas of conflict, like the sexual aspect of our relationship. My partner became more and more closed off and aggressive, using more and more aggressive language on a daily basis. It was very derogatory, lots of swearing, lots of belittling me. I have an abusive relationship in the past and swore that I've never let anyone speak to me in a certain way or treat me in a certain way. And because I loved this person so much, I'd fallen back into that pattern. It's hard to admit that you're in an abusive relationship. Even after you leave, there's still this fear. Yasmin is now separated from her partner, but she still lives in fear. This is why we've changed her name and voice. You can hear it in the way she speaks. Sometimes she'll skirt around an issue or have a hard time speaking directly or blames herself. This is not unusual for anyone that's recently left an abusive relationship, but Yasmin has an extra barrier to overcome. Although she's currently residing in Australia, she's not an Australian citizen or a permanent resident. I'm still on my spouse visa. Being on a temporary visa like the spouse visa or partner visa limits Yasmin's ability to access help for the violence committed against her. Yasmin is an immigrant to Australia. 
I'm Verity Firth. And I'm Ollie Henderson. And this is After Me Too, Stories of Social Change. In this episode, we look at immigrant women. According to the 2016 census, nearly half of all Australians were either born overseas or had at least one parent born overseas. Today's episode looks at how immigrant women negotiate relationships, work and study in their new home. We'll be looking at two specific groups of immigrant women. First will be international students. According to a Human Rights Commission report in 2017, 22% of all international students had been sexually harassed at a university, and this may be grossly underreported. Second, we'll look at women on partner visas who've experienced domestic violence. We'll hear from a woman who's recently left an abusive relationship and a woman who's trying to help others leave. Through these stories, we'll see how gendered and sexual violence can be very different for immigrant women. So, Ollie, what ended up happening to Yasmin? Well, Verity, we'll come back to Yasmin in a little bit. But first... They don't know the whole story. (laughs) This is Benice Datu. And for 2018, I am the Women's Collective Convener. Uh, currently do medical science. So this field is a bit out of my comfort zone, but then it's really opened my eyes to a few more uh, topics and issues that you don't normally encounter when you go to uni. There are 430,000 international students in our country right now. That's one in 55 people in Australia. Not all are at university, some are here to learn English, or others for skills and training. But international students make up a big part of our society. I come from the Philippines, so I moved in Australia in 2014. Last year, the Human Rights Commission brought out this report that Benice and I both read, as did many other people. It examines sexual assault and sexual harassment at Australian universities. The report found that 51% of students were sexually harassed in the past year and that one in four students was sexually harassed in a university setting. I found these numbers shocking, but Benice had mixed feelings. For me, it was just a completely detached feeling. Like, I was, I was looking at it, and I just could not feel anything. Like, I was just like, these numbers are unbelievable. But at the same time, a part of me was definitely like, why am I surprised? The report also showed that international students were actually slightly less likely than local students to have been sexually harassed or assaulted at a university setting in 2016. But this might not be entirely accurate. Underreporting is the huge issue. Dr. Kyunga Jung thinks the stats might be skewed. Because some cultures, uh, sexual violence is regarded as sexual issue rather than crime or violence issue. Kyunga is a senior lecturer at the University of Technology, Sydney. Her research focuses on sexual violence and women's activism as a response in both Korea and Australia. She also does work around immigrant women. I was an international student myself, so maybe because of that, yeah, I'm passionate about this uh, topic. Kyunga says that international students and women from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds are in a vulnerable position. They are easy target and also silent victims. Racist attitudes can influence this. Because some uh, offenders 
perceive migrant women, international students, they have accent, there is a language barrier, they might have very, you know, subservient, you know, attitude or gender roles, different gender roles. So, you know, offenders, some offenders, they are likely perceive these groups of people as a more, you know, vulnerable. There are many reasons for underreporting sexual violence by international students. It's not just about people not knowing where to go for help. Our whole perception of what constitutes sexual harassment and assault and how we deal with it is cultural. Some international students, they don't want what they experience known to their family because they worry about, you know, you know my parents. Number one, they might, you know, want me to come back to, you know, my country. And also my parents will be very disappointed because this is lost, you know, their family face. Shame is a common response for victims of sexual violence. This feeling can be enhanced through social and community judgment and the way in which we delegate blame and responsibility for violence against women. This is a sexual assault and sexual violence, but some cultures believe that she is dishonored to our family, dishonored to our community. Plus, it can be really hard to report or seek help if you don't have the words in your native language to describe what's happened, let alone trying to do that in a foreign language. As you know, there's some cultures even never say in public sex or sexual violence. The way that culture shapes our perception of sexual violence doesn't just happen after the fact, after an incident. It happens way earlier. Yeah, it's, it's kind of like ingrained in me. So when I moved here, it's less of being reminded, more of like, I already have that mindset. This is Benice again. It's like a, an advice that your aunties will tell you, that your grandparent will, grandparents will always remind you of before you leave home. That Yeah, it's, it's kind of like ingrained in me. Her family had a lot of advice for her. Oh, when it gets late for girls or for women, should be home or should be like with someone, better with friends than alone. Um, Try not to get public transport by yourself. These seemingly harmless comments were meant for Benice's safety and are really familiar to me and most women. This is exactly victim blaming. It's culturally ingrained victim blaming that you're scared to report and you're scared to tell them because in the end, it's not the actual situation they're going to judge, it's you. But if you're brought up to think this way, where do you go when something goes wrong? An international student who grew up in, the, in a different kind of environment would not readily report it because they would think, oh, where I come from or where I grew up, it's not common that you do it. It's like, it's just something you keep amongst yourself or you share to your family. But There could be repercussions, like if something were to happen to me or if I were to be put in that situation, uni or my life here would not be my first place of comfort or like my social circles here would not be the first thing I would turn to. I would still kind of turn to my family, my immediate family overseas or like um, my my social networks overseas because that's where I kind of like grew up and that's where the trust is. 
Most of the international students in Australia come from our neighbours in the Asia-Pacific and Indian subcontinent, just like Benice. Kiyunga says in this part of the world, there's often... More collectivist culture compared to, you know, Australian culture. That means family bond and, like, their community is really very, you know, solid communities. Benice says this collective culture can work for or against you. All my family, not just immediate. There would be a worry of what is the backlash that I'm going to get to this? What is the reputation of my family going to come to if they hear, oh, I went to a different country to study and instead something, something happened? If international students are underreporting sexual harassment and assault, or just waiting until they get home to deal with it, how can we know the extent of sexual violence that's committed against them? Kyungi was asking herself the same question when, through her research, she discovered something. One in three abortions performed at the Women's and Children's Hospital in Adelaide involved international students. There are many reasons why a woman would choose to terminate pregnancy. But Kiyunga did some analysis on this question too. From that data, we can guess an international student might be victims of sexual assault, so they, you know, had unwanted pregnancies, but they don't know where to go, where to seek help. And termination of their pregnancy, they thought that is the a best way dealing with this, you know, sexual violence or unwanted sexual relations. It's difficult to know how many of these terminations are the result of sexual assault. It could be due to lack of knowledge, as sexual education differs greatly from country to country. But Kiyunga thinks that it's something universities should at least be looking at. Not only sexual violence education, but some, you know, young people, they don't know. And they end up like, you know, abortion instead of, you know, contraception. Sexual violence committed against international students is not only a traumatic experience for the victims and a criminal justice issue for our society, but it's also an economic issue. If uh, Australia has this you know, left reputation, rape or sexual uh, risk to universities. The wealthy family in China, Vietnam, South Korea, and they never send their children, you know, that universities. Education is Australia's third biggest export, after iron ore and coal. If Australian universities were known to have a high number of sexual harassment and sexual assault cases it could greatly impact university funding models. Thankfully, after the Human Rights Commission report, universities have been stepping up, and not just for international students, but for all students. The University of Technology Sydney now has a mandatory consent training for all students. Verity is going to chat a little bit more about this at the end of our episode. But for now, I'll leave this story here. I'm Verity Firth. And I'm Ollie Henderson. And you are listening to After Me Too, Stories of Social Change. 
it is hard to consider reporting someone who have sponsored your visa because it is about um, indebtedness. This is Jane Brock. And I am the executive officer of Immigrant Women Speak Out Association. Jane helps immigrant women leave violent relationships. And also it is about um, caring for the person who have sponsored their visa. And it's also about love. It's about love. If you love a person, you don't want to put them into trouble. Love is something that people often overlook or can't see when looking at domestic violence from the outside. It's hard to imagine love amongst violence. Earlier, we met Yasmin. Hello. She was in love. We were very much in love, so it didn't seem to be a stupid thing to do. She's talking about applying for the partner visa. I very much want to live in Australia, so I found that having spent so much time with my partner, this feels more like home than home these days. So I did feel that in order to stay here and be with my partner, this visa was possibly my only option. So they started the application process. It was a hard time for Yasmin as the abusive situation escalated. But Yasmin says it was a difficult time for her partner too. I suppose due to, I think, the stress of moving here triggered a mental health issue for my partner. But the abuse was happening before the application process too, and it didn't get much better after the visa was approved. Yes, after the visa got approved, I felt like I had to make sure that I was paying all of the bills and keep us afloat, because if he was to break up with me, then I have to go back home, and that's not something that I was prepared to do. The visa amplified a power imbalance in their relationship, and this was lauded over her as something to be grateful for. I think I was giving more of myself to the running of our lives. I feel like I was very much trying to, you know, making sure we had a good home and that we had good food and and did fun things. I felt quite rejected emotionally. I would quite often be pushed away. And if I would even go up to him and give him a kiss on the cheek in a sort of social situation, it would be a sort of frustration and irritation for him. Like, you know, not like I'd slapped him, but like, ew, a fly had landed on him and it would battered away. So I would overcompensate with the lifestyle that I could provide for us. After a time, Yasmin found the courage to leave her abusive partner, but she wasn't sure how to go about it. It's very hard to often find information about what you can do in these situations. So where do you go if you want to leave? Often your first port of call is the police. But for some immigrant women... When things happen in that manner or where there is abuse, they hear people tell them, or even in their countries of origin, that they go to the police. This is Jane Brock again. In their country of origin, the police are the abusers. This is something that Yasmin experienced with the police in her country of origin too. I've dealt with the police in my home country before, and they are not particularly compassionate towards women, and tend to think you're being hysterical or making something up. But the police will sometimes think you're making things up here too. Jane has heard this from many women. One case that I can tell to you 
is uh, a case of a woman whom we assisted. And uh, she said, the police asked her, where did, where did you come from? What's your country of origin? And she had uh, told this police officer that she's an Asian woman from the East country. And she said, I don't need to listen to you. I know your stories. And this is another, you know, story that you tell. And I think you better go home, go back to your husband and look after him. And the other thing is, he's almost like your father. So um, why, do you, why do you marry a man, you know, or even maybe older than your father? So, isn't it? It's really about coming here, having a permanent residency, and um, yeah, and having a life here, and then you leave your sponsor. I think the hardest part is that if you did want to stay on it but break up, you have to justify the level of abuse in your relationship to the police, an issue, an AVO. Yasmin is talking about an apprehended violence order, or AVO which is a court order telling the abusive partner to cease the violence and stay away from the victim. When a person is experiencing family violence, an AVO is typically needed to get off the partner visa and access permanent residency for themselves. But Yasmin didn't want to go to the police because she didn't want to cause trouble for her former partner, but also for his family, who were a big part of her support network here. There's always a huge amount of fear that these people would have been so kind to you in the past could turn on you if you were to betray the family. You know, blood being thicker than water. This was even more difficult for Yasmin, as she was financially indebted to his family. I still have some financial obligations to his family that I can't back out of. Partially out of respect, but secondly out of really just wanting to be able to stay here and live my life here. She had to pick up several extra jobs just to make ends meet. Family can be difficult. Different cultures have different family structures and different expectations. Reporting it to the police and, and this thing happened to you, it's, it's, um, you know, it's like an embarrassment that you were not a successful person. This is what Jane's mother in the Philippines told her when she was becoming a woman. There's a belief that women should be strong because you are the light of the family. If the light is gone, there, there will be darkness at home. Jane recalled many stories of different family constructs that make it more difficult to leave. Some are surrounded in shame. And they will say no, because you will put to shame this family who have sponsored you. And if you put them to shame, it's our shame as well. And the community will be you know, looking down on us and say that your daughter is not successful. Or straight up blame. It's her fault. Or serious danger. Or they can even throw acid on your face or throw acid on the face of whoever in our family. Yasmin was lucky in this regard. I have very loving parents who are extremely compassionate. Not to say it wasn't difficult for her. 
I didn't really want to tell my family what was going on because I was very ashamed of the situation. She eventually did. They were obviously quite shocked with the things that were said because of the discrepancy, with how things initially were. It was an uncomfortable experience to tell my family, especially as his family knew and they bore witness to it a lot of the time. Yasmin decided not to get an AVO, but she did leave her partner. It's only been a couple of months since I've been out of the relationship. Although she still feels locked in. Although we are separated, I am still on the spouse visa. And I'm hoping to see it through and then either be sponsored by a company or find some other alternative so I'm no longer beholden to my partner. And struggles emotionally. I feel a lot of the feelings that most people, when they break out of any relationship, feel. Obviously, like loneliness and regret and heartbreak, a lot of anxiety. These feelings are heightened by fear of being deported or fear of not being able to maintain my financial obligations. The fear of being deported is a big one. As in, I made it the next day without being deported, or made it the next week without being deported, or made it a whole two weeks without having any conflict, socially with the family, or anything like that. Yasmin's story isn't over, and she's moving forward with her life. My support network in Australia was incredible. I have very good friends here, which is part of the reason I wouldn't want to live. But wounds will take time to heal. This episode has been challenging to make and probably really difficult to hear. But these stories must have the opportunity to be told. I'll leave you with a message from Jane Brock of Immigrant Women Speak Out, who you heard from in this episode. Her words demonstrate the strength of immigrant women embarking on their new lives here in Australia. Women always are at the forefront of the revolution. I'm Verity Firth, and we're back in the studio with our producer, Ollie Henderson. Hi, Verity. How are you doing? Hi, Ollie. So UTS has been rolling out consent training. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Yes. Well, in fact, we're the first university in Australia to roll out mandatory consent training for all staff and students. So it's over 50,000. So it's been interesting. We see it as just part of a suite of initiatives. We know that mandatory online consent training isn't the answer to everything, and it's definitely not the answer to the large-scale cultural change that we need to see. But it's been going well, and, and we think it's important in terms of starting those conversations and, and beginning to learn and have a shared understanding. And how long has this been going on for? Like, I'm sure it didn't just happen overnight. No, it didn't. So before we rolled out the, um, the consent module, we talked to students because what we were most concerned about is making sure that we're actually meeting their needs. So we did a whole range of workshops with students. And what the biggest feedback we got 
from them was that they did want to talk about consent. They're very interested in these issues, and particularly international students. International students are actually quite nervous. They've come to a new country, they don't necessarily understand Australian cultural norms, and they're nervous about interacting. They say things like, "How do I, I need to know that my behaviour is going to be appropriate. How will I know that I am being appropriate in this situation? Yeah, I guess it's a pretty awkward thing to ask. Where, where do you find out the cultural norms of sexuality in a new country? I know, right? <laughs> How do you ask people that question, you know? So for many years now, even before the Human Rights Commission report, we have been rolling out face-to-face training in at our UTS housing. So this is training called Sex and Ethics Training. It's based on the work of Professor Moira Carmody. And it's face-to-face training where we talk to people about sex and ethics and we create a safe space. And the reason we do this is that we know that 75% of our students in our UTS housing are international students and and they want to know this. They want to understand our ways and also the ways that we should all be treating women and sex and consent. Yeah, and I think having those moments, you know, as well as the online modules, but also having the additional human-to-human kind of facilitated learning environment is really important for these kind of intimate and sensitive topics. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I think one of the things that today's podcast really brought home to me is how socially isolated immigrant women can become and how you can be trapped into abusive relationships even more so by that social isolation and the fact that your support networks are all overseas. Yeah, it can be really difficult. Yeah. So how is Yasmin? Yeah, Yasmin's doing well. Um, I've actually spoken to her after our interview, after our first interview moment. And um, yeah, she's still separated from her partner, which is really good. And she's actually... um, She's actually about to undertake a process to access permanent residency separate from her partner visa now. Now, this is a a pathway that we didn't actually discuss in the podcast. It's called the non-judicial process as opposed to getting an ABO and getting off your partner visa that way. Um, and so the non-judicial process, it doesn't require the court's involvement and victims will make a statement with statutory declarations um, from relevant officials such as doctors, caseworkers, child welfare, police, psychologists, basically gathering evidence of the abuse that has happened, and that gets submitted to the Department of Home Affairs for evaluation. So you don't have to go through the courts or through the police if you have had bad experiences with them. It can be really, really helpful. And I think one of the other nice things that has come out of like this interview, um, for myself and for Yasmin, I guess, um, she actually learnt about the non-judicial process through our interview. She didn't know that it, it existed before we, we kind of sat down and had a chat together. So, you know, I hope this is helping her back onto her path. That's a great outcome. Yeah. It's a podcast with impact. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> This episode was a collaboration between the Centre of Social Justice and Inclusion from the University of Technology, Sydney, and 2SER 107.3. Our producers are Nina Kopel and Ollie Henderson, with additional production assistance from Joanna Cobert. If you liked the show, show us some love on 2SER.com, 
Or if you're listening on your favourite podcast app, subscribe and leave us a review. This podcast was made on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation.